So <laughs> interplanetary file system or IPFS is a distributed storage network. The content is accessible through peers located anywhere in the world that might relay information, store it, or both. And uh, IPFS finds data by its content address rather than its locations. The the other the other incentive which I uh, is more relevant immediately to IPFS and and other building blocks like this is that it's also expensive to run a service yeah. like Twitter, right? Uh, and so I think with IPFS, if you free up the maintainers where they're not running this core infrastructure and they don't have to pay for that core infrastructure, then they might be more free and liberal and like what they allow to build on top of their services. Hi, this is Will. And this is Sri. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. Finger guns. Hey, Sri, how's it going? Hey, uh, pretty good. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It is uh, Christmas, so happy holidays. Yeah, nice. I like I like your Christmas tree. Very, very festive. I got it after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Right. Well, in preparation for for next year, I suppose. So, what what are we what are we drinking <laughs> this week? Let's see. So, I got this blood orange seltzer, which I mixed in some like ginger syrup. So it's a sort of a gingery citrus drink. Right, but. It's it's completely virgin, right? It is, yes, yes. Uh, keeping it's, with it's my as healthy as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sugary, so it it, it doesn't have any uh, probiotic benefits, or it's not going to help my bones or whatever. But it, it does not have alcohol. <laughs> right, exactly. How about um, you? I am drinking Planet Oat Oat Milk. Nice, extra creamy. Yeah, extra creamy. I, I think I've discovered that uh, dairy does a number on me, so so now I'm drinking oat milk instead. Nice, very cool. All right. Yep. So, well, what are we talking about this week, Will? Three. We're going to be talking about IPFS this week. Have you heard about IPFS or even what the acronym stands for? I know it stands for Interplanetary File System. That's a good start. So <laughs> Interplanetary File System, or IPFS, is a distributed storage network. The content is accessible through peers located anywhere in the world that might relay information, store it, or both. And uh, IPFS finds data by its content address rather than its locations. And so th the combination of these things makes it a interesting infrastructure for the vision of the web that people that made IPFS have and more and more proponents of Web3 are starting to build on top of it, even though it's been around for, I would say, six to seven years now. So, yeah. Interesting. So it basically is trying to make the web into more of a decentralized network rather than the internet as it is today, which uh, is supposedly decentralized, but is actually centralized in a variety of ways, whether it's single points of failure with uh, servers hosting content, or even you know, every now and again, like Cloudflare or AWS has a hiccup and then half the internet goes down. And so it kind of sounds like it's trying to solve 
that source of issues. Is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess one simple way to think about it is that it's like an S3 and you can store digital objects on the storage network, except if one of the nodes goes down or one of the companies hosting the nodes go down, like your files don't go, go down with it. And so there likely isn't going to be an Amazon of IPFS. There are some nuances and caveats, which we'll talk about later. But the idea is that if a company or nodes go down in this network, your files will continue to be hosted so that they can be accessible and effectively up, even though parts of the network goes down. So this is more in line with the original vision of the web by Tim Berners-Lee, but like building these sort of distributed systems and distributed networks is really hard. And so what uh, Tim Berners-Lee opted for with the web was more of a client-server model, and that has proven to be very effective in capturing value. And so mm -hmm. the web, as it has grown up today, has certain properties like you don't expect that your data is necessarily yours if a company goes down or gets sold like they just say you have a week to export it and then otherwise we're <laughs> yeah. gone right yep. and so there's there's a number of things that we've kind of gotten used to as users of the internet but the distributed systems people remember the vision of the web as it could have been. And so they've been working towards that in the last couple of years. And like AI, this has summers and winters as well. And so if you remember Napster and like the, what is it? Nutella? Is it Nutella? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Casa Networks. Casa and all that stuff, yeah. Right, the peer-to-peer -peer networks, those were in the late 90s, early 2000s for like music and video sharing. And uh, that was one summer, like, and then after mm -hmm. they got crushed by legal things. Yeah, the, um, the RIAA, the evil. Right. And then... And then the, what do you call it? The client server models, they, that's been most of the web. And so it's only recently that this sort of stuff has found a resurgence, especially with Web3 coming into public consciousness. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear you on the fact that decentralization is, is a cycle. It's, it's cyclical, right? The, the web started out fairly decentralized, although it was architected with the assumption that most of the participants of the web, at least early on, were going to be part of these institutions, you know, academic institutions or research institutions. And then it, it kind of coalesced back into uh, a centralized model. And then I think there were, there's the whole peer-to-peer -peer, uh, file sharing and the piracy that comes along with it. And, and of course, BitTorrent was, was huge for a while, and then we've sort of coalesced back, and then I think now there's, there's strong to, to decentralize yet again. And I think that it's interesting, looking at IPFS, I was, you know, of course, reading a, a, about the technology, but on their website, 
they're very, very idealistic about you know what they believe in, or rather, they're rather opinionated about the ideals in which they believe in. So, hey, if you uh, got to start a movement, it's not a company; it's a movement. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. This. This is. This is what uh, decentralization looks like, right? It's about principles. It's about you know doing the right thing. And no, and I, and I mean this like. I, I, it was well, it was very in, interesting in order to, read. to yeah in order to get people behind it right because there are yeah. no, nearly as many dollars behind the sort of stuff like you need to motivate people somehow if not yeah. with vc money then with words that inspire <laughs> right so. yes exactly uh, but, but no i mean i think like you know a lot of a lot of the their website um is dedicated to kind of espousing the ideals of like anti-censorship mm. the fact that this is a network in which the content cannot be taken down at least through you know legal means and it's sort of resilient against the single points of failure that kind of plague the the modern mm. web as well as being sort of tamper resistant again that ties into the censorship so so that the the files or the content on ipfs it has some crypto cryptographic guarantees that if you are uh, looking at a particular IPFS address, uh, you you know that uh, you can verify that uh, the contents match that address. And so, yeah, it, it's 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 very interesting. I think that uh, it has a very kind of underground, you know, again like Rebel Alliance type feeling to it kind of the underdog to this like behemoth that is the modern web and and the sort of corporatized internet does this strike you as interesting because it's so different than the type of rhetoric or the words that you find on other projects or or maybe you haven't seen enough crypto projects well no i mean i think i i've definitely seen that kind of you know a crypto punk cypher punk rhetoric plenty in the web3 uh, web3 ecosystem but i think that why it's interesting to me in the context of ipfs is not that it's unique globally among all software projects but rather that if you break down ipfs from a technical perspective the building blocks are all things that were familiar to me right mm -hmm. like the, and we can go into the building blocks of uh, yeah. specifically but they they remind you of git they remind you of BitTorrent. they they remind you of things that have existed forever yeah what is interesting is why this and why now right it, not the what but rather the why and so yeah i think that just looking at how much time they spend or, or you know discussing their vision of the future kind of informs maybe the technical decisions or what they're optimizing for. Yeah, I mean, uh, it might be an interesting question, why now? Because they've been around since, what, 2014, I think? I, IPFS, yeah. at least. And uh, I know during that time, like, what was hip and happening in 2014? 3D printers, I think? Um, <laughs> that that yeah. was the kind of what was hyping Drones? I, I think beginning of drones and... Uh, wearables like smartwatches and stuff like that so mm -hmm. yeah i mean like they these people like juan bonet the founder of ipfs like he had to work in obscurity with a, a band of rebels for, for a couple of years before yeah. this sort of stuff 
panned out. So, yeah, I mean, the parts are all there. Actually, one of the interesting things about IPFS as an organization is that they provide a lot of their building blocks as open source software that you can use. And so a lot of companies pay lip service to this, but they actually do a pretty good job doing it. Not only do they have separate parts of the uh, repo available, the documentation is relatively good, and they have courses like Proto School mm. that they use to teach you how to build stuff with this new web architecture. In addition, they actually architected IPFS with these multiple layers so that like it's not just one giant monolith that you have to download. So yeah. um, this m more than some of the upper, uh, other episodes that we've done, it has building blocks for our listeners who are builders out there to go ahead and take the stuff and play around with it and see if they can kind of build new things out of it that, that they couldn't do before. Yeah, definitely. I, I got that sense too, uh, in terms of also the way that they've laid out their uh, GitHub repos, uh, such that they, they're all sort of libraries that are, are modular and things like that. And so from an end user perspective, uh, looking at the, tu the tutorials, and I, 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 ran, uh, I ran some commands myself, basically IPFS looks like a, a version of S3, but it's a little bit familiar also in the sense that if you used Git before, you know, a commit is uh, identified by a hash, and, uh, yeah. and so it's not a completely alien concept. And so that's the interface. But I know there's there's sort of a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of the building blocks. Yeah, what what are what are some of the things that are that are going on? Yeah, so I, I think there's like three fundamental principles that you should understand to kind of wrap your brain about around IPFS. The first thing is the unique identification unique identification of content via content addressing. And so one of the the things that you mentioned earlier that there's uh, these hashes that you see these if you you've used git and most modern programmers have like you understand that principle immediately. But if you yeah. don't we'll we'll go over it uh, real quick. Two is the uh, content linking via a directed acyclical graph, like the Mer the DAGs, and specifically the Merkle DAGs. And then that's how IPFS like organizes its data and does uh, caching and deduplication. Mm -hmm. And then number three is the content discovery via the distributed hash tables, the, the DHTs. And so with the unique identification it's basically if you take a hash of the content then you get a unique identifier for the content and so unlike the web where you look for data based on its location signified by the url you look for data based on its hash and so if the contents change then its hash changes and so yeah. Immediately, you might think that that seems pretty annoying because every time that I update something, then its address changes because it's a content address. But in fact, it does have some nice properties and there are ways to solve that issue. Yeah, so I actually wanted to pause there because 
There are obvious user experience issues with having content addressable namespace, specifically in the fact that if you update a piece of content, the the address changes. But I think there are advantages to that as well. So specifically, a lot of the time on the web, if you have a URL, those URLs are very unstable. So I have tons of bookmarks from years ago pointing to like some interesting blog post and I just saved it as a bookmark. And sometimes I go back and that piece of content is not there anymore. Or the person has completely changed the layout of their website or the URL structure of their website and all the yeah. links that I thought I had are completely broken. And so one, I think content addressable namespaces are an advantage in that if you if you have a piece of content and you take its hash and you remember that hash, then you know what you're going to get back. You know, they, they can change whatever, they can update and have a revision or whatever, but you're going to get back the thing that you initially requested or, or are looking for. And secondly, I think that the other advantage in my reading is, again, the, the sort of uh, tamper resistance and, and verifiability. If you are in a uh, country where there are man-in-the-middle attacks from, you know, state agencies, you might request a particular internet resource and uh, and get back something that is a modified version of what you had requested. Right, so, like if you're looking up like Tiananmen Square massacres or something and you want yeah. to make sure that you, you got the original like Wikipedia article or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, so obviously there are, there are layers of protection, so HTTPS might protect you to a great degree, but still, I think that if you're concerned whether the content that you are getting back is the content that you had requested, well, content addressability basically solves this because you can just check the hash. Okay, I got this this uh, Wikipedia article back and I take the hash. Does it match the, the IPFS hash that I was looking for, the IPFS content identifier? And so that gives you some some degree of protection as well. Right. And in addition, it's not just web pages that people are sharing over IPFS. Like you can put large data sets on IPFS. The original inspiration for IPFS was to share large data sets, actually. And so you want to make sure that like data integrity for your data set is still intact when you download it from a through a peer-to-peer network, right? And the second one is the content linking via the directed acyclic graphs. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for any piece of data or file, like IPFS can cut it up into little chunks and um, it has a algorithm to cut it up into optimal chunks. I don't know exactly Mm -hmm. How they decide, but like when you have too little chunks, then you get too much overhead, and then when the chunks are too big, you don't benefit from the advantages of deduplication. And so, if those mm-hmm. of you out there are familiar with functional data structures or immutable data structures, it's the same idea. So, when you have a file you cut it up into relatively small chunks and then you calculate their hash. And then what you do is you build up a Merkle tree. And uh, the properties here is that if you have another file that has 
similar content, but only a little bit is updated, then the IPFS network doesn't need to have duplicates of those file chunks because it already mm. has them somewhere in the network. So it, the Merkle tree for a specific file just needs to like add the new ones to the tree and then it can reuse all the parts of the tree of parts of the file that haven't changed at all. Yeah, I think the, the probably the most common case where two files will share a lot of chunks is if you have a data set that somebody is updating, so they're appending onto it or they're updating maybe one record or something, and that basically will append a chunk or it w will invalidate one of the chunks in the middle. But all of the rest of the, the file is the same, and so it's not too much of an overhead if you make small updates to a data set yeah. you don't have to update the whole thing again and 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 have that overhead on the network yeah and it's actually the same strategy that git takes it doesn't store diffs it stores conceptual snapshots for every commit but underneath the commits share all the data objects in which nothing has changed and so the only thing that gets added on are the hashes and objects that have changed from commit to commit. And so it's the same idea. Cool. Yeah, it makes sense. And so with the content discovery via discovery distributed hash tables, do you have something to say about this, Shri? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's a complicated technical concept, but it's a core building block distributed hash tables are a core building block of a lot of peer-to-peer -peer systems. And so if you've ever used a, a BitTorrent to download 100% legal Ubuntu ISOs, that's the only <laughs> yes. use case for that technology. So if you've used BitTorrent before, it, it also uses distributed hash tables. When you're, when you're connecting to a BitTorrent, I think it's like Swarm or something, basically you are using underlying your your client is using distributed hash tables to find out which of the peers has what chunk of content mm -hmm. and it's it's all decentralized except for you know as, as some BitTorrent nodes use like a tracker or whatever but anyway like um when you're actually exchanging the the pieces of information uh, there is no central server that says, okay, this no, this client uh, A has this piece of content and uh, this other client has this other piece of content. It's all sort of uh, shared through distributed hash tables. So it's a, it's a core building block of many peer-to-peer -peer systems. I see. Yes. So here there's the three fundamental principles you need to understand and get your head around IPFS. And I guess from there, there's some quick misconceptions about like IPFs that people have like um like one we mentioned earlier that it's it's a free storage it's definitely not like in your peer to peer like if you want a piece of content to exist throughout the network for a long time like then somebody has to pin it and so effectively there has to be a i guess canonical source of truth for the file because as soon as like one other peer asks for a piece of content, it'll cache it and serve it to other people. But if over time, if there's other pieces of content that is accessed, it'll push out uh, your piece of content. And so yeah. if nobody is pinning it, then 
uh, it might get pushed out of everybody's cache and then it would cease to exist. And so yeah. uh, we, we mentioned some caveats earlier and this is, this is one of them. Yeah, I think the mental model of using IPFS is, is a little bit different because when you're using IPFS, currently the way that you use it is that you install a, a program on your computer. It's a command line tool. Right. which is like you know ipfs and basically it is maintaining a cache of the things that you have requested like you said and uh, i guess it, 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 the cache is sort of an lru cache right like so it'll kick out the things that, as they get older slash you don't access them anymore and uh, so that's the that's the technical aspect uh, of it but th the idea i suppose is that the things that people care about will live on because there will be at least one node which is either you know pinning it or 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 has access to it so if you have a particularly uh, hot piece of content then it will be in people's caches if it is important to somebody but not particularly popular then maybe that person will pin it on their ipfs node or client so that it uh, will remain available and won't get kicked, kicked out of the cache and the way that they phrased it on their website, again, going back to the IPFS principles, is that they view the web as, or the, the, the vision of the web that they're trying to go for is more of one of participation as opposed to ownership. So this is sort of a collaborative, everybody is working together to host the content that they care about and through that providing a storage and redundancy to these pieces of content. Yeah, and you might think like, then what's the difference between like, the IPFS and the current web, like if a node goes down, like doesn't the content go down? And so not exactly. I mean, you do have like some amount of time before uh, a piece of content goes away. And so if it turns out that, oh, this piece of content or whoever cares about it a lot, like can't pin it or host it anymore, there's still time because like it's it, it exists in a cache version somewhere on the network and so anybody can just find it and pin it again and so it's it's much easier yeah. to keep content alive well importantly the difference is that because the person who created that content does not have the sole ownership of that content on the network it means that somebody can't just take down a piece of content that they they have hosted before because they got bored of running their blog or okay. they were coerced into taking it down mm -hmm. and so there there are a ton of very popular blogs to give a non-political example because i've been giving a lot of political examples yeah the uh, venture capitalist mark andreessen used to have a i think a live journal blog or i think it was a type ad blog or yeah, something a long time ago. Uh, yeah a long time ago uh, back before, I mean, he was still rich, but like, you know, back when he was rich and blogging. And so. <laughs> Put <laughs> and that so, on your Tinder status. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it was a very, very popular blog. And then he got bored of it or it didn't fit his whatever, like brand image or whatever. And he took it down. It had like a lot of life advice, career advice and stuff like that. And people like, it lives on because people have archived that and they've like reposted it, like sort of pirated versions of his old blog posts. But yeah, that that's the problem with the web is that somebody can be the original author of that thing and they, at their sole discretion, are able to say, okay, I don't want this content to exist anymore. And then it goes down forever. Whereas in this IPFS version of the web, we wouldn't need to do these games where somebody says, oh, I have an archive of 
a Mark Andreessen's old blog post, it would just be there, right? Like if people cared about it, they would have it in their cache, they would have pinned it. And then Mark Andreessen can say, okay, I don't want to run this blog anymore, but you know, he, he can't unilaterally take down the blog from, from the network. Yeah. And then you have the opposite problem for the, cause isn't, aren't there some places in the world where you have this law of the right to forget? The right to forget yeah. yeah. And, and so like, I guess maybe if Twitter was built on IPFS, people would be much more careful on what yeah. they say because that's <laughs> the sort of stuff might follow you around forever. And so that's, that's one, but then like the, the more, I guess the, the cases where people don't stab themselves in the neck, like they do often do on Twitter is like revenge porn, right? Like that mm -hmm. may be an issue where, you know, you didn't post it or like, you know, like you were in the most insidious cases, you were a minor or something like that. And that's where yeah. stuff gets posted all around like that. That is something that I haven't seen addressed. So the these sort of technologies definitely have a double-edged sword. But for the part that we're concerned about, like definitely there's like this whole world of thing we can go down that rabbit hole. Like we're concerned about the types of information that are useful, like Mark Andreessen's posts or like scientific data. Right. Mm -hmm. Like oftentimes if you're, you're doing machine learning and like oftentimes like these gigantic data sets are hosted by like some university. And like, as soon as some yeah. grad student leaves, like you're like, ah, I can't access this anymore. Even though the right. GitHub repo is available, you're like, like mm -hmm. this data that I need to train on this thing is not available. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, this is a, this is a, uh, very, very common problem. I think like all of our listeners and viewers, have been bit by a broken link. The internet is very unstable in that sense. Uh, a URL doesn't really mean anything. And in the original version of the web, where the web wasn't quite so big and uh, you know people were hosting their sites on you know academic web pages, they were uh, where you know uh, the institution would always be around and their servers would always be around. The idea was that a URL would be a stable, universal identifier to a piece of content, yeah. and there, you know, there's a lot of idealism and a lot of that, that was a core building block off of which the web was built. And, and URLs are still around, but they're sort of unreliable. They oftentimes don't point to a stable piece of content. They kind of point to a, uh, you know, in the case of like a single page web app or something, they post to, it, it doesn't point to any particular thing. You don't know what you're going to get when you go to, you know, facebook.com, right? The other thing that IPFS gives you is the uncensorability of the files and data that you put on there. But it's a misconception that IPFS is anonymous. Like all the nodes publicly advertise their IPs and which files they're hosting. And so if you are going to be posting blogs condemning various state level actors while you're living in that state, like you might want to take a second look at a sort of like privacy features that you would want to employ on top of IPFS to do something like that. And so people have involved IPFS in these sort of things before, like in 2017, the 
Catalonian government, which is inside of Spain. Like they're kind of always, they're a part of Spain that wants to be independent, but Spain says no and, you know, that sort of thing. And so the Catalonian government used IPFS to bypass Spain's censorship attempts on the web. And so that was one use on the world stage. And then another one is that after the Turkish government banned Wikipedia, one of the contributors to IPFS downloaded the entire Wikipedia and hosted it on IPFS. And so this sort of stuff um, does happen. But like in both cases, I guess people really weren't afraid that the repercussions of knowing who posted it. And so they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I posted it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so if you're not worried about that, then then IPFS is for you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the mental model that I have in my head is it's from a user point of view, it feels like S3, except mm-hmm. you are uploading to a network rather than a single server or a single company that owns a fleet of servers. And so if the content is not found on one node, it'll be found on another. And if I want it to live forever, then I need to pin it. But if not, then there will be free floating copies around until nobody's interested in it. And with these properties, like you can build some interesting things that have different properties than the modern web that we know today. Yeah, I I think that it's a good point that IPFS is not free storage and it's also not anonymous storage. But what's interesting is that it makes storage on the internet more like a public good or utility. Yeah. So you know, you are not at the whims of a particular hosting provider, you're not locked in it's sort of a a grid you can think of, of of storage that any app can write to, whether it's for the purposes of hosting a web page, media, as well as I think arbitrary content. You, you, there's no restriction on what you can post to there. And so yeah. I, I I've seen on the awesome IP, IPFS page. There are a lot of GitHub repos of projects where people are building, you know, basically anything, and and just plugging into this, and and writing whatever kind of content they want. And so, yeah, it's it's a it's a new way to think about building your apps where storage is not something that you sort of decide and get locked into, but rather you think of as kind of free floating and always available. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I wanted to avoid this, but like it feels like a proto Pied Piper. Where, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's the dream of of uh, distributed systems, where you basically commodify the nodes and the hardware, right, and the mm-hmm. content and applications and data data like just live above it. I, I guess it's like what Google built for itself internally where yeah. like machines go down all the time but like software developers and and users are none the wiser and so ipfs 
is something that provides that capability, but as a public good available to everyone. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I guess like when it comes to interesting applications, I mean, we mentioned things that were politically motivated, but have you found others? I, I guess there's the awesome IPFS yeah. list, awesome list for IPFS. And to me, I was surprised that there was already a relatively large ecosystem of projects that are leveraging IPFS. Because when I first found out about it, it was, I want to say 2015 or something like that. And that was relatively early. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. But I can't see anybody using it right now. I guess I was wondering, like, how many new companies build their stack on IPFS? And to be honest, I haven't heard of a lot of it. And so that's why I am uh, surprised that the awesome list, as long as it is, but that seems to change if the company has anything to do with web three <laughs> yes right. and so you know one of the applications is using ipfs as a host and storage for nft images and so one of the criticisms about nfts is that the nft doesn't actually hold the artwork it's just a pointer to a url that actually mm-hmm. holds the uh, artwork but then that's where most people drop the ball in their understanding because they assume that the url is a web 2 url where Mm -hmm. as all the properties of things can be taken down and so this url can also point to ipfs addresses and so as long as the public somebody cares about the image like it could be an image Mm -hmm. of the equivalent of a mona lisa and so somebody's going to want to pin it because it has cultural significance then it's practically going to live on forever on the ipfs network yeah i think that makes sense and and in terms of philosophy it's more aligned with the idea of nfts and you know cryptocurrency and and the whole web3 suite of things where the the ethos of both of, of both ipfs and and web3 are that of decentralization sort of trustlessness where you don't have trusted parties special parties who are single points of failure and so yeah it makes perfect sense that if i have this nft whose value and all of its history and transaction is backed by this decentralized network that the content is also going to be hosted on this uh, decentralized network as well. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's kind of one interesting application that, that I've seen that I've been pretty close to. But it seems like in their usage ideas, examples, and as well as the awesome list, another one is for... P2P video streaming or like music streaming, that seems to be a pretty popular use case as well. And I imagine yeah. that probably cuts down on a lot of bandwidth costs. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really, really expensive to host as well as pay for the bandwidth of, of large media. So uh, S3 is insanely expensive if you want to host, uh, for example, a podcast. Well, they, uh, and it, they charge for outgress. What's the word? Yeah, egress. Egress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so, so. That, that's why that's where it can get really expensive. 
Yeah. So I I think that I mean some of it is artificial scarcity like a, a lot of these companies because they own the data centers and uh, they have their own incentive structures for kind of keeping people within their ecosystem they privilege you know traffic within their network and they charge a lot for traffic outside their network even though it might not necessarily cost them that much yeah yeah but i think that I mean that's a, that's a core core need that IPFS is solving basically is that if you look at the structure of the internet today if you want to host content you're basically playing into the incentive structures of these large hosting providers who have captured so much of the core inter- internet infrastructure whether that's DNS or you know hosting or a bandwidth that you're basically playing by their rules. And I think that IPFS, again, kind of inverts that that structure by privileging no one. And so, and, uh, yeah, I think that hosting video and and other uh, media uh, sounds like a good idea uh, because yeah, it, it, it's not something you can do today, actually. And changes the cost structure of such a thing, right? And so it allows smaller players to to come on up and do something new in the space. Because yeah. I, I guess, like, when you are successful on any platform and you figure things out like it's it behooves you to erect barriers and you know warren buffett likes to call these moats right and so that's how you make money is when you create these moats that make it hard for other people to compete but when a space matures over time and the moat becomes so high that you only get like two or three players at any one time then it tends to stagnate and so People usually find ways around this, and this seems to be one of the ways where you find a new architecture with different properties that change the calculus and the underlying business assumptions that you have to do a particular thing. And so this seems to be one of them where you can do video and streaming at cost, uh, like a lot cheaper. Obviously, I, like, I haven't looked into exactly how much it is, but I imagine it should be a lot cheaper. Or like I don't know what the service level agreements for IPFS would be like whether mm-hmm. latency would like figure into it, but it, there seems to be companies that are doing this sort of stuff. So it must be tenable to some degree. Yeah. 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 I, actually, I mean, just to, to, to give some idea, it's, it's, it's very cost prohibitive even to host a moderately trafficked podcast on, on AWS. And so oh. it, I would say it's straight up impossible slash untenable to host media on the, the the traditional cloud and so if ipfs is even slightly cheaper it, i mean yeah it's it, it, it's enabling something that wouldn't exist today huh i see another interesting application that i am a little bit closer to as a programmer is the idea of a distributed package manager and so for mm-hmm. anybody in the javascript community we all know the left pad debacle where like some developer in some fit of rage decided to delete his package and, <laughs> yeah, and it broke a whole bunch of other people's packages and it created a lot of work for other people. And so we all got the sense that, okay, like even though package authors like library authors should have some degree of control over their creations, it shouldn't be to the point where it just creates an emergency for everybody else. And so yeah. that's one issue that 
could be solved by IPFS because like if somebody manages to take something down, you can't force other nodes to take it down, right? They're cached. Mm -hmm. And so there is some time for people to adjust to yeah. that without making it a, an emergency. And I think the I, other, oh, sorry, go on. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I, just to add on to that, I think that as as package managers are evolving with uh, new languages that are coming out, a lot of them are are sort of leaning toward the idea of using URLs to point to packages. So I think uh, Dino is a you know new JavaScript runtime that yeah. um, you import everything by URL rather than just by package name. And so yeah. I think it'd be really interesting to kind of further build on that. And uh, maybe you can even point to a particular IPFS hash so that you are not just using a URL, but you're using a very stable URL. So you know exactly what version of the package mm -hmm. that you're importing into your application rather than having that change uh, out from under you. Yeah, I mean, like dependency management is a whole thing onto itself. And so like anything that you can do to stabilize that would really help the daily life of a working programmer. I mean, one of the things that is also trouble with package managers inside the node ecosystem is that the NPM repository is actually controlled by a private company. And this is a little bit unusual because most of the time programmers on the web using tools born of the web want open source stuff. So they're not beholden to like a single entity. And so as a result of NPM being a private company that has raised venture capital is subject to the forces that venture capital exerts on private companies. And they may or may not be interested in the developer ecosystem that grew up around it. And yeah. so this does have some people worried about it. And so one of the reasons why one might want to seek funding for package management is because a centralized package manager is really expensive to run due to its bandwidth costs. Right. And so once again, if you use IPFS to change the calculus of it, then it opens the doors for a variety of programming language communities to leverage that infrastructure mm -hmm. for package managers without having to worry about skyrocketing costs. Yeah, definitely. I think that one thing that comes to mind as very, very good use cases for IPFS are those cases where the content that is being hosted is a public good. So we talked about IPFS itself being a storage layer that is a public good. Yeah. And what kind of content would you want to host on this kind of uh, public storage? Well, the content that is universally meaningful to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, packages are uh, a very good uh, use case of that. There is another uh, project called Radical, uh, spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E, uh, which is a, a type of code hosting and code collaboration tool, basically a decentralized GitHub, which uh, I believe uses IPFS under the hood uh, to store its commits as well as the other objects that it needs. And what's interesting about both of these use cases are that they are services, or rather they are use cases where software developers view 
the hosting of code as well as the hosting of code artifacts like packages as a universal good that we consider them not to be owned by a particular entity that it's not a money-making enterprise yeah this is something that everybody needs the same way that you know everybody needs roads and everybody needs you know you know water. basic basic yeah, running you know, water, water running water and stuff like that and so i think that it, there's this one like xkcd which uh um yeah, i'll link to you, but basically it's it it, it it's shows if you if you draw the dependency uh, graph of like all of the world software packages you know one like critical edge that that everything depends on is like maintained by like some random dude in Iowa yes. who does this like for fun and so so much of the software ecosystem today's software ecosystem as well as the web3 ecosystem relies on a software being freely available being always available always up and so these are the use cases where I think it's prudent to host those on uh, a platform like IPFS, which is, again, you know, resilient to single points of failure going down, is resilient to uh, unilateral takedowns, censorship, et cetera, et cetera. Or perverse incentives that aren't aligned with your community, right? So Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's a good observation. So another thing, well, like we touched upon this earlier about data sets, like even beyond data sets, I would think that ML, like a deep neural network, the weights for a particular network, that should probably be stored on IPFS. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good use case. Everything in the, the ML tool chain, whether that's the original data sets, or the models, or the code for the models, to be honest, should be stored in in a publicly accessible place. And I think this is, again, a case where we view these things as a public good, where, you know, a lot of these data sets, like ImageNet, is a very popular data set for the training of computer vision models. Well, I think one of the reasons why I was thinking about ML as a good candidate is not just because these things are public goods and can be accessed, but because yeah. ML relies a lot on what's called transfer learning or fine tuning. Mm -hmm. So what you would do is you take the weights from previous model and you lop off the last one or two stages on it and then you retrain a new network on that so that you retain the learnings from lower layers and you just change the top layers to yeah. uh, fine tune it to your specific domain. And so yeah. if you have like a image recognition neural network that recognizes dogs, you can take that, lop off the last two layers and then train it on mushrooms and then it'll do a pretty good job on mushrooms. Yeah. And so that that's why I was thinking that these weights should be like publicly available on IPFS. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a very good observation. You know, I was thinking in the, under the lines of the data sets themselves, but you're right that increasingly people are using pre-trained models and then fine-tuning them with their particular use cases. And again, I think that's that's still a public good in that we in the machine learning community expect that there are going to be these models, they're going to be available, and that 
anybody can come and take them and use them and then fine tune them for themselves. And so you, one might be concerned about the longevity of these these models where you know if some somebody loses interest in some uh, a machine learning model and stops hosting it on GitHub or stops hosting it on S3 or something that's going to go away. Yeah. Right? And and it's it's a problem both in terms of the practicality, like, okay, and now uh, for some reason I want to use just that particular model and fine tune that, then like it's, if it's not available, I'm out of luck uh, if it weren't on IPFS. Mm -hmm. But it's also a problem all in terms of the repro reproducibility of, of the science of it, where there are so many models where you're not able to get the original model that the, the paper authors used. And so if you want to benchmark some new advance against the older model, you either have to make a best attempt at reproducing the model yourself, or you have to kind of take the, the benchmark figures that the authors posted at face value. And this is a problem for the scientific community as well. And so in that sense, having the, those models themselves and their weights be publicly available is sort of a benefit both from practical perspective as well as from the more kind of idealistic scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then so, so I guess these were kind of the things that people are building today that kind of stood out to me. Were there applications that kind of stood out to you that, that people were building up using IPFS to build today? No, I mean, I think that that covers it. The, the awesome IPFS, GitHub repo has a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. The the one theme that I notice is that most of the applications that people are building today are porting our existing use cases, but just doing it on IPFS. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just like X for IPFS, where X is something that you already know. Yeah, and I so saw it doesn't one feel where like it's a like version control, like they're reporting version control for IPFS, so interplanetary version control system. Right. And so yeah. it's like Git. And so for something like that, I can imagine that eventually maybe people will get sick of GitHub or GitLab as centralized things on, built on top of a decentralized technology like Git. And so maybe they would want like decentralized all the way down. And so Git on top of uh, IPFS or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so right now I, the things yeah, are not like qualitatively yeah. different, but I think right. that it, it it I think that's just a, a consequence of the sort of how early we are on the adoption curve where mm -hmm. like people are still kind of taking the existing use cases and eventually people are going to like do something like completely different. Yeah. And then I I guess before we move on to kind of the the what happens in the future, one of the things I want to mention as an interesting like emerging project is IPLD, which is the interplanetary link data. And this mm. harkens back to the original Web3, which is the semantic web that died a long, slow death. <laughs> and the idea was simply that we should be able to organize the world's information in a way where there's metadata to describe it in a machine-readable way so that we can effectively perform joins and queries on all the documents that are on the web to hmm. answer any question that we have. And that vision never came to pass for a variety of reasons, but 
IPLD is a subset of that where they want to have something that bridges all these hash-inspired systems, such as IPFS, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum and Git, so that in your, for example, in your Git commit, you can reference a Bitcoin transaction as a way to timestamp your commit or like the ethereum smart contract can reference an ipfs address and you'd be able to traverse that in a machine readable hmm. way so that you could effectively build browsers and crawlers for all this stuff and so i, I thought that was a pretty interesting concept there interesting yeah i i think that um that kind of goes into where i wanted to go with the future use cases so thinking oh, beyond I'm, just... I'm glad i'm like reading your mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're on the same page i guess that's why we run a podcast together right. <laughs> <laughs> i i think that you know beyond just like host x on ipfs i think that where things are going to get interesting is in in the web3 space where you have all of these networks that are are running independently. So you you have you know decentralized networks for storing financial transactions. You might have decentralized networks for you know smart contracts. And I think people are going to be using a variety of these types of networks, each with their own properties, for particular use cases as building blo building blocks of what people are calling dApps, right? Like these uh, distributed apps yeah. where instead of using your cloud providers, you're using these, these decentralized platforms. And so I think IPFS is, is one key building block. And I think that like you're, you're mentioning IPLD might be a way to kind of tie these together so that, uh, you know, you can, you can cross-reference things. You can sort of remix things. You can have things that are things on one network point to pieces of content on another network and so i think that in isolation ipfs is providing file storage but i think what's interesting is that it's interoperable with these other decentralized networks and so you can kind of compose them to build arbitrary apps that again are permissionless that are don't require uh trust in a, a hosting provider or even trust in the original author of that software. So right now, if I own a domain and I own a service, I can unilaterally decide that I'm going to make it now paid or I'm going to make, you know, remove this feature because it, you know, it, I, I don't like it or I'm being censored or coerced into removing a feature or whatever. And in the future, you can imagine that distri uh, distributed apps are going to be able to run sort of independently of the original creator, and they might be run by organizations like DAOs and things like that. And so again, if you want to kind of go, if you're a maximalist in, the, in, in decentralization, you're going to want to use building blocks that again are, have the same properties. And I think IPFS is a, is a, a really key uh, building block. Yeah, I, I was thinking about like why you would do that beyond being a zealot or like an ideologue. But I think there are certain things that 
you pointed out such as oh it's understood that something like this is a public good we would all collectively make more money doing other things when we have this common infrastructure that everybody maintains and so package management like packages are are definitely one of them and we can see that there's other type of things such as machine learning models, which I don't think is is common knowledge within the machine learning community to use IPFS at all, right? I don't know. So. I wonder no. why that is. Maybe they just haven't been marketed to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably not. But also, I think sharing Docker images might be another good candidate um, mm-hmm. across like your organization, especially if they have like different different people working in different places instead of, yeah. I guess, I guess paying Docker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Cut costs there, poor Docker. And then, and then I guess I was thinking like in the future, like what sort of data would I want to be on IPFS? That's public good. Um, classifieds come to mind. Even though you're a big fan of classifieds, man. Like we, I, you were talking about classifieds in the yeah, other episode too. I, I think it's because of Craigslist, and so because I have friends that have personal dealings with Craigslist, that that comes mm-hmm. to mind. Because like for classifieds, like I can see how initially when you built Craigslist, the value was in the aggregation, right? Yeah. And so once you've done that for a while, the value is, it becomes, it feels more and more like a public good rather than like, oh, okay, some, somebody spent time to kind of aggregate this because that no longer happens. Like users just submit it, right? There's no work being done. Like the, the value add there is, is not apparent, I guess. And so mm-hmm. it becomes, it seems more like a marketplace and network, which feels more like a, it should be a public good that then, you know, people can build upon that for whatever yeah. type of transactions that they want to do with each other. So, so yeah, I, I, think, that comes to mind. I think we're coming upon a theme, which is that right now, the way that the value flows in the, running of inter- internet infrastructure or even internet services is that is one of aggregation where yeah. you have you know companies like Amazon and Google and and Microsoft with Azure who have a stronghold or moat in their ability to run data centers and things like that and yeah. through that moat they're able to command a lot of demand they're able to aggregate demand and become incredibly rich by providing these core building blocks and there's nothing wrong with that i think like we wouldn't be able to to run you know services at the scale that we do today without that kind of infrastructure but you know that's that's only one economic model and so i think with ipfs it kind of inverts that and again says okay if we make it sufficiently distributed and, and decentralized, then it's no longer a profit center to provide core internet services. And again, I like your use of the term perverse incentives. You kind of remove the perverse incentives that come with a centralization of what we consider to be crucial infrastructure. And I think 
going up the stack, uh, I think the same thing happen is going to happen with the internet services, where right now internet services, it's incredibly profitable to aggregate demand to your service. And by maintaining and exerting ownership over that service, you capture the profits from that. And I think yeah. the decentralized web is moving away from that. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm not like a maximalist in this sense. Like, I, I, I do feel like when a network is small, you need, do need to have some way to accrue value to its creators and whatnot. But then once it gets above a certain size, I feel like there should be like some freeing of the pigeons or freeing of the birds or, or of the network as a public yeah. good. But like, we currently don't really have any mechanism or agreed upon way of doing this sort of thing like even in mm -hmm. communities that like go towards this ideal it's it's very much a roughshod process like mm -hmm. for for any like cryptocurrency token that that tries to do this sort of thing like they run into all sorts of pitfalls people doubt their good intentions whether it's actually good or not right because you can't tell yeah. And, yeah. and so so uh, i guess like ipfs is just one way to kind of turn the incentives on its head but for when a network or like a marketplace is is much bigger yeah i and i think there's a sort of emerging playbook with of decentralization with things like DAOs and things as well, where there's a spectrum where you can go completely, you know, open and everything is up for, for public uh, debate and forum. But that's sort of the end game. And I think to your point, it's, it's hard to get the ball rolling that way because you need yeah. kind of uh, people to be financially incentivized as well as uh, to have kind of strong opinions, you can't just have everything designed by a committee. Yeah. And so in the early stages of of anything, whether it's a software project or infrastructure or, or whatever it is, it's going to look a little bit more centralized. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's completely impossible to start that way and then and then say, okay, now we're going to open this up. Yeah, yeah, even for the people that want to do it, right? Like for, yeah. for the companies that wasn't able to get that rocket ship for whatever reason, and they ended up having to get acquired, they can't even release their software to their end users and have them maintain it. It's so rare, right? Yeah. Even if yeah. The, the, the community is so fervent and, you know, they want, it's, it's just so rare. And so... Yeah, like I was wondering if you can actually build applications on top of IPFS, like whether that's already been proved out. It seems like conceptually yeah. you should be able to do that. Yeah, um, there there are, there are a few there are a few companies that are basically trying to build the developer tools that are are kind of layered on top of these core building blocks. One of which is IPFS. So I think there's like a project called like Textile as well as a few others. I think there's like one called Fleek. Fleek. Yeah. yeah. Where they're all sort of playing at the space where they're going to be the, I don't know, st standard library, so to speak, of like I'm a developer trying to build a service on top of uh, a Web3 service. And, uh, you know, it comes with IPFS storage. It comes with like some other thing to do, you know, PubSub or messaging or, or whatever, right? 
and so yeah i think that that's an that's an emerging concept i think what we're i think what we're both trying to kind of think about is whether we've seen anybody actually build anything on top of that that is noteworthy and i think that yeah. we're not yet in that in those stages i think like people built the core infrastructure and then i think some people were like okay well this core infrastructure is like a little too raw like we're gonna build one layer of abstraction on top of that and then like the next step is people are actually going to use those abstractions and build something and right now i think those are those are a little lacking yeah, like uh, outside of ideology, like you bring, you welcome all sorts of like operational complexities if you build an app on top of IPFS that you wouldn't yeah. have otherwise. And if you do that, if without being an ideologue, then you invite a lot of problems that you may not want to deal with. And so if you're yeah. an ideologue, like you're willing to put up with it. Cause one of the things I was thinking is that when you deploy front end apps on IPFS, you could just keep every version that comes out. And so users mm -hmm. that want to stick to a specific version for whatever reason, like they like that look or they like the features before you remove something. Then yeah. they they can go and and stay at that version forever. And we we, we talked other, about this yeah. a little bit actually in the the end user programming episode as yeah. well. Is that if you have like these shared primitives, then you can you can swap out, uh, you know, the client or uh, actually we we talked about this in the local first programming example where mm -hmm. you know you can use your own custom client. Or maybe an old version of the same service, and as long as it's sort of able to talk to the newer versions of the same service, then it's it's fine. So yeah, I think like it could enable that kind of use case. Yeah, and so you would have to be a little bit more careful in designing this sort of stuff, and I guess you have to support all previous versions somehow. And yeah. I guess policy-wise, you can say we can only like give you support for the last five versions or something like that, but. Like it at least gives people a chance to like move off of things or find yeah. some sort of alternative or even fork, I guess, if, if they really wanted to. Yeah. I think that one, one use case or one future that IPFS as well as other de decentralized building blocks will enable is that by shifting away the operational burden from the creators and maintainers of a service, it actually enables them to do more with their service. So one use case that comes to mind is that I was reading an article that says that Jack Dorsey, the, the former CEO of Twitter, uh, now that he's not, no longer the CEO of Twitter, has been basically giving... Uh, all kinds of candid interviews where he's like <laughs> he, he, dissing Twitter and all of the decisions that were made. And one of, one of the decisions that he said he regrets is sort of the turning down or kind of reducing the capabilities of the Twitter API. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I think that wasn't that Dick Costello when he was at the helm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that might've been under his, his, his um, watch. His, yeah, his watch. I, I, I uh, mean, it's it's the same thing that happened to Yahoo when like people thought of the CEOs that ran Yahoo thought of it as like a media company. They they did yeah. that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think 
you know, the vision of Twitter in the really, really early days, because it was built off the piggybacks of like, you know, the, the early like Web 2.0 hype. Mm-hmm. A lot of the early users were part of that Web 2.0 crowd where they were like, okay, you know, the crowd is here. We're all going to post you know, user-generated content and things like that. And, and the, the vision of Twitter was that it would basically be this kind of shared infrastructure for the web, for Web 2.0, where it yeah. would be this kind of like pub-sub layer where you could like, you know, watch for updates, you could post updates, whether those are from humans or from other apps. So it was kind of this like uh, building block that, that people were hoping to plug into and use to kind of accelerate the rest of their apps. Yeah, because and... like at that time, most of the web was not real time. It didn't feel real time. Whereas Twitter, yeah. like you could hear about an earthquake in your local area before anything else, right? No other channel. Right. And so people wanted to use it as kind of a live nerve center of the web, but that's not exactly how it turned out because the API kind of got killed. Yeah, so they killed the API, and and I'm sure there are a variety of reasons where uh, for why. One is obviously the economic incentive. It's not profitable to run a you know a distributed or not distributed, but like to run a pub sub for the web for everybody else's apps. Like that's not that's not profitable at all. And so they moved more again toward this media company model where they were like, okay, Twitter is going to be the destination where you come and read, you know, tweets rather than Twitter is this like underlying layer. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. I, I guess also because micro microtransactions and micropayments yeah. still aren't a thing. Maybe people yeah. are still hoping actually, but uh, I mean like that, that's probably why that it wasn't economically yeah. profitable. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, yeah. and the the other one, the the other the other incentive, which I uh, is more relevant immediately to IPFS and and other building blocks like this, is that it's also expensive to run a yeah. service like Twitter, right? And so you don't want to just like be people's, you know, free compute and free storage. And so I think with IPFS and these other building blocks, if you sort of free up the maintainers, you know funds where they're not running this core infrastructure and they don't have to pay for that core infrastructure, then, you know, they might be more free and liberal and like what they allow to build on top of their services. Yeah. Cause I was thinking people, the users talk about building another Twitter on top of say Mastodon, which is federated or like IPFS, which is distributed, but like it doesn't really happen. And so is it because of network effects or like what would it really take for like a creator of a network like thing to look at IPFS and consider, okay, like this is the, this is an infrastructure that makes sense. And so we already covered something mm-hmm. for like video streaming and audio. Like it makes a lot of sense because it inverts the, like the business calculus like the the streaming costs are no longer as exorbitant right and yeah so that that is makes a lot of sense but for other types of data like twitter does it actually make a lot of sense to put like a twitter on top of ipfs i don't think that it there are immediate reasons why if you're under the incentive structure of the the web as it is that you would shift to IPFS. 
I think that the the use case where I think new things are going to be built by built on top of IPFS natively are going to be those new services where they are sort of I don't know like governed by a DAO, right? And so, like, is a DAO just culturally are they going to you know sign up for a AWS account and then like run all their services there, or will they you know tend toward uh, a stack which is more integratable into the running of their DAO so that, you know, they can have a referendum that where there's a vote and that vote triggers a, you know, the committing of a change, which, you know, gets patched onto, you know, some file or some, you know, something. And so IPFS, I think, plays well with that kind of ecosystem and and again i think that relates to the ipld and things like that where you basically can cross-reference you know uh, content on ipfs with smart contracts with bitcoin transactions and so if you're in this environment where you want all of these building blocks to play well with each other then you might say okay well we're going to run on uh, store our files on ipfs we're going to run our compute on you know some other decentralized uh, compute provider or whatever it is Huh. <laughs> that means that if functional programmers ever get their chance in the limelight, <laughs> maybe they would just kind of pick IPFS because it works well with the ideas of immutable values and, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine that if you're going to have some type of database that is publicly available and you want to have all the properties that you know something like datomic gives you of you know immutability referential transparency you know history and all of that stuff that yeah you might tend toward doing it on ipfs yeah we'll we'll see but i mean if technical books are any good indication there's always like so and so language in a functional style like there's all these sort of books right because yeah. it used to be that that um they had the same sort of books for structured programming. So COBOL in structured programming or like Fortran mm. in structured programming because people discover, oh, this is a pattern that seems to work and you can kind of retrofit it onto your existing languages that don't have that feature. And so yeah. I, I think it's the same thing with functional programming that, that seems to be happening. So that, that's a good indication. So maybe that's good hope for IPFS. So what about the IP part of IPFS? It stands for interplanetary. But I, I want to say it's yeah. a reference to the original vision of the internet where it's interplanetary, but obviously there's yeah. some aspects of the internet as it is constructed today that is not very conducive to an interplanetary network. For mm. example, we have centralized servers that you need to go completely to and back, right? And so yeah. I think Alexa needs to record your voice and send the voice file to Amazon centralized servers to process it for a voice before coming all the way back. And Alexa just triggered. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, Alexa, stop. <laughs> and so, so that's not going to work very well if we're going to have an interplanetary network between say earth and mars and earth and jupiter and so yeah. you could say that okay we'll probably just set up a cdn of sorts between the different planets so that like there's a voice like service on every planet but 
you know, like yeah. that may or may not work. But ideally, yeah. like, you would have something else, right? Because like nobody on Star Trek, like we mentioned this before, which episode was it in like Star Trek? Nobody says computer, blah, 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 blah. And then right. it's like, you got to wait eight minutes for it <laughs> the, right. the computer to come back with you about something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, there are two ways to view this interplanetary aspect. I think that, you know, being optimists, I think we should think about the literal interplanetary aspect where if we become a space-faring civilization, then we're going to need a computing power much further away from Earth, right? And so that's that's an interesting aspect. The The more immediate aspect is actually, if you think about Earth as it is, as being a sort of many, many disparate planets. So so you have sort of the, the internet at large that we are connected to, and then you have the internet that's kind of behind the great firewall within China, or you have, you know, these other subset of networks that are, you know, controlled by other countries. And And the interesting thing about IPFS is that you don't need to be connected to the main backbone that everybody else is connected to. You can have, you know, uh, basically within your subnet, within your country, if you're able to discover peers that have a piece of content that you're looking for, then you don't need to be able to traverse outside of your your country's subnet and find it on the greater web. And so that that's interesting for the censorship aspect of it, but it's also the the same property is going to enable it being interesting for interplanetary use cases because again rather than searching for a you know piece of content and then having to retrieve it from a server that is hosted somewhere maybe back on earth and you're on a space station or something if somebody has that piece of content on your on that space station you're going to be able to download it from them and so it sort of decouples the the you know the content from where it is hosted which is is mildly interesting when everybody's on the same planet but is incredibly important when everybody is potentially on on very very different places with a huge latency between them yeah and it, i guess the key point is that this synchronization or like downloading from peers is relatively transparent to the end user. Like you don't actually care where it's hosted. It's just, I, I guess it's how real end users think of the cloud. It's just like somewhere out there, right? And so yeah. IPFS lets developers think of things that way as well, instead of like, oh, it's actually hosted at amazon.com or something like that, or on S3. Yeah. yeah, so I think that, I mean, you're gonna have to do you're going to have to have two building blocks that in order to solve the the use case that you're talking about which is that you want your your smart speaker to be able to respond to you without the sort of round trip time back to some earth data center you're going to have to have decentralized storage as well as decentralized compute and so i think that i'm not sure I'm not as familiar with the decentralized compute aspect, but certainly I think IPFS can solve the storage aspect. Yeah, actually, wouldn't it be a way to do deployment? Because you could publish your new version of your machine learning 
like a speech to text algorithm or service and mm -hmm. then any remote nodes that ping that content address would be able to cache and download it and if you don't have a direct connection you can just wait for traveling nodes to to connect to it and then bring it to you yeah 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 i think that makes sense and i think that you know if if you recall when we were talking about sort of the the edge edge computing where you know more and more computing is getting pushed out to these not not centralized data centers but basically cdn nodes that are close in proximity to the end users you can imagine doing that at a very extreme sense when on an interplanetary scale where you have you know compute providers who are you know on your space station or on your whatever moon base or whatever whatever it is mars base and you know they you can make a request to them and say hey i want to run this package with these arguments and they either have that package cached from ipfs or they you know they download it and they cache it and then they run it and they say okay here's your here's the result of your computation and so you can see you can use ipfs as yeah basically like a package manager like we were saying or or it's able to download arbitrary binaries and sort of run them so i mean i think ipfs out of all the different things that we've talked about has real concrete projects and uh, repos for builders to build upon and it's got certain properties that you'd want to leverage for building new kinds of apps out there yeah i think that it's interesting that it's it's been around for so long and i think that it didn't really have a lot of relevance until maybe now where people are really caring about decentralization and uh, making things distributed and so i think we're still really, really early in the adoption curve. I think, you know, we're going to see more concrete apps and things being built on top of it in the coming uh, years, not even years. I think that the pace that things are happening these days in Web3, I think that, you know, within months, we're going to see uh, some app that's going to be popular, the first IPFS powered popular app. And so I think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah. And especially going to be ones where it turns the basic business calculus on its head and so I, I i think i use that phrase a lot because um it's what the internet did to traditional businesses like there are all these things that uh, it did that changed the the way that you would think about your unit economics that kind of up upended everything and so i think IPFS has the potential to do the same and definitely web three, like the, with all the cryptocurrency stuff, it, it has the potential to change a lot of the underlying calculus for it. Yeah. So that, that's why I, I personally am pretty excited about it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we, we've covered a lot of ground. I think like IPFS, if you are a revolutionary or rebel today, maybe you can look at IPFS today for your, for your, uh, you know, rebellious use cases. I think if you are a uh, space uh, explorer or future space explorer, IPFS also has uh, something for you. And so I think it has uh, something for everyone. <laughs>
yeah and if you want to get more ideas like ipfs stocks are really they're pretty good i mean they they have a section around uh usage ideas uh, and also check out their like ipfs awesome list i'm sure you can google and find it and that'll give you a lot of ideas of what people are building with it today very cool yeah so you know with that i i am my optimism is in space yet again and, and so i am going to be in space downloading programming language packages and copies of wikipedia from ipfs that's how excited i am <laughs> yeah that, that's it so uh, yeah thanks thanks for for watching like subscribe share smash that, like button. Smash that like button write comments a trick the algorithm into thinking we are a popular podcast right exactly <laughs> so next time we'll be back with yet another topic with more self-referential quips of previous episodes and more healthy yet i don't know hipster drinks or whatever and we'll be back <laughs> next week for more technium all right all right Bye. see you later Bye bye